Hi listeners, it's Lucy. Please don't scroll ahead. This is a very quick message, I promise, to ask a very easy favour. At the end of each episode, as the credits roll, you'll hear a request from us to rate and review the show. Now, for those of you that are awesome podcast listeners rather than podcast makers, you might actually have no idea what a huge difference those things make. A significant factor in the visibility of a podcast on almost all listening platforms is down to the number and quality of ratings and subscriptions. So, if you are one of our dedicated listeners, hi, I know some of you as far away as Australia, so thanks. If you're currently not driving your car or changing a baby's nappy, can you please just look down at your phone right now as I'm talking and hit subscribe and five-star rating? Both of them are on the homepage of the show and they are both only a one-click job. But oh my God, what a lot of joy and gratitude I would feel at those one clicks. It makes such a difference to the show's potential to keep going. Now, enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. Hi, Lucy Eaton here, host of Hear Me Out. We've had lots of requests from our amazing listeners asking how they can support the show. So before we invite today's special guest on, I wanted to let you know that we are officially now on Patreon. This means that you can invest in the channel monthly, and in return you get all kinds of perks from bonus footage to having your own questions put to our starry guests. Just head to our page on patreon.com slash podhearmeout. We've popped the link in the show notes below, and we would love to have you join the family. You're about to hear a brief conversation with an incredible actor. Part autobiographical journey, part literary analysis, and part late-night chat in the theatre bar, this is Hear Me Out, and I'm your host, Lucy Eaton. Please welcome to the stage, Brendan Coyle. into the deep and meaningful yeah. stuff. Yeah, when I think of the speech, I've never really reflected on the speech as an intrinsic part of the work. I've always thought of the speech as something that's taken out of context, and something we always did for auditions back in the olden times. You know, you, you do your modern and your classic, you know, when you went in for an audition. Yeah. But to think of the speech as an intrinsic part of the work, I thought, well, how's the speech figured or featured in my work? And I can't think of a play where it hasn't featured. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, the last play that I did before all this was The Price by Arthur Millen. Right. And there were two v- very distinct speeches in each act. And uh, but I didn't think of them as speeches because they were kind of woven into the fabric of the play, you know, and mm. they sort of emerged unforced and just naturally from conversation. But sometimes with plays, you know, the speech is kind of stuck on when p- plays aren't that great. And there's a sort of verbal equivalent of the drum solo, you know, and they kind of <laughs> jar with you because, because they're, not, they're not woven into the fabric of the play, yeah. if you like. So that was, that was the last play I did. And the, the last play I was supposed to do, I was in Chicago. I was about to do Molly Sweeney by Brian Friel. And um, I have to confess, I didn't know the play. Mm. Um, but I'm, I'm a bit obsessed by it now. And that's a series of monologues of speeches mm. by three characters who don't see each other or hear each other, and they're well, they interweave through this majesty of this play. So it was a play of speeches. Yeah. So I had this when you talk, when you were going to talk about speeches, I thought, well, I'll do the freel to freel thing because I, the last thing I was supposed to do was freel, and freel's played a big part of my life. The, the two writers who played the biggest part of my life were Conor McPherson and Brian Freel, and thank God for Ugh. that. Praise be. Yeah, they're great speechwriters, monologists. I mean, Connor's very early work, Roman Vodka, The Good Thief, and This Lime Tree Bower, they're all monologues. I think The Weir was the first play where characters spoke to each other. So Brian Friel, when I was at drama school, I was at Mountview Theatre School, and um, prior to that, I was at this method studio in Dublin. 
and I trained there. And I toured Ireland as a stage manager, and um, I was broke, you know, and invited to audition for a scholarship. So I fused two speeches from Philadelphia, here I'd come. Brilliant play. Brilliant play, yeah. To create this story, this, you know, this story arc. So I auditioned for the scholarship, and it was a big deal. And on the panel, there was about six people, including Judy Dench. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> by the time I did this story, and it's, it's a very interesting play because about a young man, he's going to Philadelphia in the morning, and he's spending his last night with his stoic, uncommunicative, miserable father. So by the time I'd done this speech, Judy Dench was crying. She was at the back <sighs> of the stalls, kind of gently weeping. And I thought, oh, I'm in, I'm in. Made the Dench weep. This is good. <laughs> yes. And she, she loved it. And the other speech, and this was a real... Sorry, that is the coolest. You can't just move on from that, Brenda. That is the coolest thing ever. That beats like any other award, any other accomplishment. It's cool, isn't it? Like you made the Dench cry. <laughs> I made the Dench cry. That is, that, yeah, that's very impressive. Thank you. So, um, yeah, I got, so I got the scholarship. Um, and made the dance weep. Bravo. And it was a huge break break for me because I did a, I did Philadelphia Here I Come, that part at the King's Head, which transferred to the West End to the Wyndham's. And a six-month run in the West End. So Ugh. lovely symmetry to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, di- I directed Dancing at Lunasa at my old drama school. So Friel's been it's featured, has been writ large. But um, I mean, Conor McPherson is the one who's had the most impact. Why do you place him on a higher pedestal? I place him on the highest pedestal. I'm more than obsessed, and he's had a, an enormous influence, not just on my work, but on my life. You know, when I um, first encountered Connor, I was in Dublin, mm. was making this independent film, and there was a real buzz about this guy. There was a real chatter about him. It's quite a tight community in Dublin, the writing mm, and acting mm. community. So I, I knew about him. The director I was working with had commissioned him to write the film, which became I Went Down, which is a great gangster road movie caper. Great. And then the next thing I knew, he was writer in residence at the Bush Theatre, and he wrote a play called This this Lime Tree Bower, mm. which is a line from a Keats poem. And you never know why his titles are his titles. But um, <laughs> it's about three men it's about three men interweaving monologues and they're reflecting on a, a robbery on a bookies that went horribly wrong. Right. And they're talking about what happened that day from their own perspectives, which are all very different. And I was obsessed with this play. The writing yeah. just just knocked me out. And I did something I've never done before. I went to see it repeatedly. I must have seen it about 10 times or something. I've never done that. And I would be dragging people down and saying, listen to this. And they'd be listening to this writing, savouring this writing. It just struck a chord in me that um, no writer ever had to that extent. Yeah. Never yeah. had. But anyway, I was lucky enough to be cast in The Weir. Wonderful. I love The now, Weir. The Weir was an extraordinary, extraordinary journey. It was... Like St. Nicholas, it was the little play that could. We had this five-hander, and we, we knew it was great. And it was directed beautifully by Ian Rickson. And it was mm-hmm. when the Royal Court was being refurbished. Mm. So we did it in a very modest way in the scene dock of the Ambassadors. Gosh. It's like an installation. It was like an art installation. Ray Smith designed this beautiful Leitrim bar, and we performed to 60 people. We had two rows of seats and round tables and chairs like you were in ah. the bar. This is my dream. Yeah. Oh, my favourite kind of theatre. And we ended up um, at the Walter Kerr Theatre on Broadway performing to 1,800 people. It's where Bruce Springsteen did his production you know, a couple of years ago. Oh, my God, how bizarre. Yeah, that's, that was the journey of the weir. Just quickly, can you give a little summary for people who don't know the weir? What is the weir about? Yes. The weir is about 
it's set in a bar in Leitrim, hmm. and it's a very remote bar. It's a, it's a converted farmer's barn up in right. the hills, so the farmers didn't have to come down into town to drink. They'd come to these shabins, you know. Right. So it's set there, and you have these men, which would be disparagingly referred to as muck savages. They were muck savages <laughs> of the land. Yeah, it's a kind of it's a disparaging term for a country folk. I want to be a muck savage. <laughs> you, you do. They're great. <laughs> um, and so we're, we're in this bar, we're in this shabin, and this flash. Um, this local character, Finbar, he owns property and he's a real flash character. Mm-hmm. You know? And he walks into the bar with this sophisticated uh, woman from Dublin. Mm. She's hired this, rented this house, Maura Nealon's house, old house up in the hills. And so these characters, they're all very lovable in their own way. They start, they have a bit of fun. They start telling her ghost stories, yes. particularly about the house that she's rented out. But as the, as the evening progresses, these, <laughs> these ghost stories get darker and stranger and more and more disturbing. And then ultimately she feels able to tell her story, which is a story of the most unimaginable grief and pain, mm. which has a supernatural element to it. So that's basically the play. Mm. And um, everyone went nuts for it. The reviews were through the roof. And we had this long journey. So it was more than a part. It was more than a job. It was a chapter of my life. You know. How did you find it when you ended up in that massive when you ended up in Bruce Springsteen's arena, basically. Was yeah, that yeah. hard? Because I feel like even when the writing is exquisite, like Conor McPherson's is, these kind of plays, like they really lend themselves to what you described as its its birth in the, what did you say, sort of in the stage dock, in the scenery dock. Yeah. So how did you find doing that in a sort of huge space? I didn't like it, Lucy. I did not yeah. like it. it. It was a real, it was a valuable lesson about the nature of the space. Mm. And the impact of the space and how the space is a character. It's almost, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a significant part of how a play commutes and relates. Yeah, absolutely. But oh, during the journey of the weir, here's where we come to St. Nicholas. During the, the yeah. journey of the weir, one evening, Connor had written this piece. Uh, it mm. was a monologue, a speech called St. Nicholas. And he'd rehearsed it in Dublin with Brian Cox. He offered it to the great Brian Cox. Oh, great. So anyway, I go down to the bush. This is the old bush, the one above the pub. And um, Brian comes on to perform this monologue. Mm. When is this, like early 90s? This is mid-90s, 96, 97. Great. And it was written not not as a companion piece to the weir, but it just kind of emerged while the weir was going on. So he Mm. wrote it at the same time. Now, you have to remember, this guy is 26. God. at this time it shouldn't be allowed really it's extraordinary i mean usually 25 26 year old writers they write about they're addressing questions of their own identity and their own yeah. environment and their own themes and issues he steps out of his skin to write as an old man <laughs> as a woman in grief as a jaded bitter middle-aged critic you know it's quite extraordinary i mean really extraordinary yeah yeah so anyway, I went to see this play, and um, I sat down again. I just, it was like the Lime Tree Barrel. It just kind of washed over me, and it just slapped me around. And I was going, this is mind-blowing, Yeah, yeah. this piece. And um, so I, I vowed to do it. I think I was about 30, and this character was supposed to be in his mid-50s. And I thought, well, I'm going to do that. And so I did. And yes, that, you did. This is, this is where we're, we're landing on my favourite speech. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 19 minutes so you're yeah. right with that oh fine it's just going to be a very long episode <laughs> but yeah so you eventually did St Nicholas with my dear brother yes I did let me tell you a bit about that I, mm. um, I've been carrying it around for a long time and, yeah. and um, I told my agent I'm, I'm obsessed with this piece St Nicholas I really want to do it he sent it to the to the Don Mom 
Mm. And God bless Josie Rourke. They um, they ran with it. They picked it up. They got the rights. And when I when I saw it with Brian Cox, it was very stark. He came on stage. There was one lighting state, no set. Right. He moved around to a couple of positions, and it was dependent entirely on the writing and the delivery of the performance, which were formidable. Yeah, yeah. But for me, I wanted I wanted theatre. I wanted a set. I wanted a soundscape. I wanted a great director. I wanted magic. You know. And along came Simon Evans. Who does magic better than Simon Evans? <laughs> Who does ma- he is magic. He is a magician in every yeah. sense of the word. He's a member of the Magic Circle. In tea breaks, he would do close-hand magic, which was mind-blowing. But more than that, he's a magical director and being in a room with him. Yeah. You know, to have been around the block so many times and, and then to think, it gets better. You can still have your best experience, which is what it was, being in that room with Simon. And, uh, and it was everything I dreamed it would be because I wanted a creative team to be let loose on it. I wanted it to be their production as well as mine. And I'll never forget the tech rehearsal when I walked in. and The set was there by Peter McIntosh. Oh, genius. That elegy at the end to love and hope. You know, that beautiful music. That sounds good. So actually, before we go any further on that, what is the basic premise of St Nicholas? Can you tell our listener what it's about? Yeah, um, I think... I think, like, with all great plays, it's ostensibly about one thing. Mm. But in actual fact, it encapsulates human nature. So, therefore, it's about everything in some ways. So, ostensibly, it's about a a theatre critic. Um, And he's at a time in his life. It's it's a midlife crisis. I mean, it's the mother of all midlife crises, this Mm. this play. And um, he's a critic who hates the theatre, really. He's bitter. He's self-loathing. You know, his, his life has no meaning. Mm, mm, mm. point really it's 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 a very dark piece yeah and it's exacerbated by alcohol throughout this whole thing yeah and he at some point in this jaded journey he goes to see salome of all plays at the the abbey and he (laughs) falls head over heels in love with the lead actress that's how fickle he is so anyway he falls in love with this actress he just walks out with his wife and kids and he goes to London because the play transfers to London. And um, he's hanging around the theatre, he's on a bender, as I mm. say, and he's drinking all day and waiting for them to come out the theatre. And By this time, his head's so messed up, he follows her home and she's staying with the director and two other actresses. He follows them home, gets a bottle of whiskey and turn, drinks half of it and turns up at this house and it's the most appalling. So seedy, it's awful, yeah. It's so seedy and desperate and yeah. humiliates himself. And just, it's, it was horrendous. So he walks out and he falls asleep up in Crystal Palace. As he stands up, he sees this dark shape that he thinks is a dog, but it's not. It's a man walking towards him. And this man, uh, it's called William, and he invites him back to this house. And he just goes, as if in a trance, he just goes to this house. And it turns out that William is a vampire. There it is. <laughs> Now, so this is when the play becomes metaphorical, mm. I suppose, but this is the, the, the supernatural element. The vampires, uh, as a metaphor, the vampire, well, vampires traditionally, when they look in the mirror, there's no reflection. They don't reflect. So, and amongst these vampires, he can finally understand what humanity is because they don't reflect these mm. vampires. He was given the chance to reflect. That's what makes him human. That's what makes us all human. I love that you say this is where it becomes metaphorical, but of course the story in the play is told entirely like, you know, this is the story. And then what happened to me is I ended up living with these vampires for a bit. Mm. And in the opening section, which we'll hear later in this episode, there are the most fabulous throwaway lines, something like, 
well, this was before the vampires, of course. Yeah. And that's what yeah, I think yeah, yeah. is one of the things I love so much about it is that it deals with this supernatural thing as if it's totally normal. It was a thing that happened in his life and it's totally normal. And then at the very end, isn't there a moment where he sort of says, did I actually meet some vampires? Uh, absolutely. He says, well, he says directly to us, he says, was it real that's or was it. it a dream? Was it real? Which gets us into, well, what isn't a dream? Yeah. Your fears, your dreams, your fantasies, your hopes. What isn't a dream? And that's when Dench would start crying. Yeah. That's when we get the Dench, weeping. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's when and the play comes full circle. I'm not going to give too much away. I'm not going to do the spoiler at the end about how, the, how it comes full circle because um, we, we are absolutely adamant that we're going to be doing it again. We don't know where. We don't know Brilliant. Where, but but um, we haven't finished. It is a really special piece and it has a very powerful end. And I have to say, there are only a handful of times in my life when a piece of theatre has made my heart race. Like, I've enjoyed mm. lots of theatre in my life, but there's a certain sensation when it's almost like adrenaline starts flowing through me. I, I am so moved. I feel like my heart's going to burst out of my chest. And the closing of your and Simon's production of St. Nicholas really did do that for me. I remember it being quite overwhelming. Well, it was wonderful because that, yeah, that light and that music would soar and as the light soared out of those, that extraordinary set... Um, I could see the faces all lit up in the audience, like see the beaming and the crying, and <laughs> people putting their arms around each other. And it, was, it was just fantastic. Well, can you describe the set very quickly? It was sort of in a trapped, anonymous attic, I'd say. The, 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 there were all these kind of Persian rugs, all decayed and rotting and overlapping, and that would be that was the ground of the play. At the heart of it was a desk and a, and a chair on wheels, which I would wheel around a little mm. bit. But there were these five large sort of Victorian windows and yeah. sort of big old wooden structures, huge they were. And they were all covered in newspapers. So it felt almost boarded up, didn't it? It felt like an abandoned... Exactly, a trap. You know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And there was buckets all around the stage. And I'll tell you why there were buckets. Um, because it was 90 minutes with, with an interval, but I, I, I knew I had to take on water, get thirsty. <laughs> thirsty water. So I said to Simon, I'm going to need a jug of water or something. And he went, no. No. That won't work with the magic. We're not ruining the magic of, of this. It won't work with the magic. Yeah, so yeah. what he did was he put these knackered old pails, metal pails of, of buckets. We'd had plastic clean buckets inside full of water. And um, and it was also it was also suggestive of the whole drinking element of the play. This man's on a bender. He's on a bender of the soul, but he's on an actual bender. Yeah. And so it would be very sort of animalistic. You know, every time I needed a drink, we had certain points where I would just go over and scoop <laughs> <laughs> a, you know, a big glass of water and it would spill everywhere. There should have yeah. been a, you might get wet notice for the front row. <laughs> yeah. Splash zone. Yeah. But uh, those those <laughs> windows at the back, there was a sort of dawn of hope. Mm. You know, we're talking about the energy yes. of love and hope and they would just light up in that sort of, the sun rising. There was, yeah, it was magnificent. It would make the dench cry, I think. It would easily make the dench cry. Yeah. We'll get her in next time we do it. Yeah. <laughs> get a double whammy. Boom. So look, You've mentioned the Donmar Warehouse already, and I think it's interesting to note that when you're describing this beautiful set, it was sort of inspired, right, by the production's original space, which was the Claw Studio in the Donmar Warehouse offices building. It's not actually in the theatre. And that room had these beautiful Victorian windows, which you're talking about, and that fairy tale like attic feeling. But 
that was only the beginning, wasn't it? So, so where yeah. did you end up doing it? So then we took it to Dublin, took it to the theatre festival. The team we all bowled up. You turned up, didn't you? I've, I mean, I saw your production of St Nicholas four times, Brendan. So I'm fast <laughs> approaching fandom levels akin to your Lime Tree Bower ten time visits. But it was an extraordinary run there, it was a big mm. hit there, and then we took it to Chicago, and it just went off the scale. It went through the roof. We performed in January. Yes. Like minus 20. And God bless Chicagoans. You know, they turned up in droves. We packed out. It was the most successful January run at that theatre ever. Yeah. I mean, it's a good tale for a cold January night. Yeah. Was this your first time doing a show in which you were on stage alone for the entirety of it? Yes, it is. And that's one of the reasons I was so sort of hesitant. I mean, mm. it sat next to my bed, this play, for a long time. And I'd pick it up and I'd look at it and go, I, I can't learn this. It's 90 minutes. And it's not just one note it's you know it goes here there and everything. it's intense yeah real challenge i wasn't sure if i wanted to do it I wasn't sure if i could do it mm. then one new year it was a resolution i thought just learn the first page and i did and then i was off i was up and running. yeah yeah and by then i put it out there to such an extent that people were running with it and it was kind of no going back but once i started working with simon mm. we started to believe in the power of the piece i started to believe in the power of the piece and um and, and so I just trusted the process, trusted the writing, trusted my team, and um, and we hit, you know, we hit home. Yeah, amazing. You have very graciously mentioned other members of your team because, of course, these shows are such a team effort. But how hard was it to be entirely responsible for holding the energy of the piece on stage? Were there, there better nights and worse nights? There was never a fake it to make it night. There was never a night where it wasn't powerful and charged. Because I had to, there were some nights, I remember I was filming the Downton Abbey film at the time, and, um, driving into Covent Garden at four or five o'clock, knackered, you know, getting my prep sandwich and soup, and I'd be lying in the dressing room, and I'd oh God, I can't do this, I'm exhausted. <laughs> and as soon as I went out there and said the first line, boom, we're in, it's adrenaline, it's connection, um, it's electric. And um, so there was never, never, um, there was never a bad night, there was never, it was never a struggle. What was your favourite moment in it? Was there a favourite moment to get to in the whole story? Oh, <laughs> there was so there was so many of them. There mm. were so many of them, little explosive moments. I loved the kind of melo uh, melodious riffing. I loved the intensity, the bitterness. Mm. I loved the offensiveness of it. I loved to shock. Mm. Um, I loved the laughs we used to get. You know, it's, it's always great when you get a laugh. Yeah, um, yeah. I love the up, uplifting, soulful stuff at the end. Um, I love the ghost story. They really believe, they really invested in the vampires. I mean, there's a supernatural element to all Connor's work. You've touched on something there. Mm. I think one of the things that makes it such a great play for me is that it is just such a cracking story. And yeah. as an audience member, that's the kind of theatre that I actually enjoy the most. I, I want to feel things, but I... I need stuff to happen too. And it's like with the Weir and its ghost stories. St. Nicholas is just a great story. It's this it's this man spinning a yarn and you are desperate to know what happens next. Yeah, even though he writes supernatural elements in all of his plays, it's never obtuse. It's never anything other than accessible. It's never anything other than a cracking yarn, as you say, that you can follow. Mm. That's why you can hang on every word because you know, you know, your mind is not stopping, your brain isn't stopping to think. What, what does that mean? What's that line? What's what, you know? You're never confused. It's 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 all in storytelling. Well, Brendan, is it time to bring in our secret bonus guest, your partner in crime, Simon Evans? Please do, please do. All right, we'll be right back. 
Hello. I hear his voice. <laughs> Who is this? Hello. Hello. Hello, hello. Hello, young man. It is it is devastating to realise that two of my favourite people are talking in a separate room and I am just waiting to be let in. This is <laughs> viciously cruel. All right, boys, stop flirting. <laughs> uh, so Brendan and I have been having a lovely trip down memory lane talking about St Nicholas, but I thought mm. it would be nice to bring you into the mix too, Simon. So first question to put to you in a podcast about speeches, Brendan's explained that this was his first solo show as a director... What was your relationship with the one-man show? I have a love for it. I've done three in total. Before St Nicholas, I did a play called Tom Payne Based on Nothing by Will Eno uh, with an actor called John Light that was, funnily enough, that and St Nicholas are perhaps two of my most personal things. There's something about the one-person play, I think, which suggests a sort of immediacy of connection between, certainly when you've got actors as good as, as Brendan and John, a sort of connection between them and the people listening, which is hard to beat. In every other form of drama, it's two characters talking uh, and you as an audience are just sort of trying to get between them or you're lucky enough to be a part of that. But the, the one person, and I don't, I don't call them monologue plays because a monologue sort of suggests to me isolation, but a one person play when you just, the text certainly with someone like Brendan can just sort of, it can make everyone in the audience feel more seen and more alive than sort of any mm, other form of mm. it. And I, uh, yeah, I think it's the magician in me. I just get off on that in a big way. I remember I hadn't done a one-person play or a, mon- a one-man monologue before. And uh, I said to you, I remember saying to you, well, it's going to be great because um, I won't be able to see anyone. The lights will be such that I'll just be performing in darkness. And, it'll just be, and you went, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> you said to me, this is a, a two-hander between you and the audience. And I'll never forget that note. We were in that room together mm. and a lot of warmth, a lot of affection, very funny, but very, very focused. Um, I mean, you're, you know, I do like a firm hand in rehearsals. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's, that's what we got, that's what we achieved. Insert witty comment here that I'm just not quick enough to think of. <laughs> yes. So, Simon, was there a particularly gorgeous part of the text for you or, or difficult part of the text? What, what was the most satisfying moment for you? Uh, Brendan is, in fact, one of the nicest people in the world so <laughs> I, I, ho- I hope I hope you take it in the spirit that it was intended Brendan when I say it took a little bit to get you to embrace your full nastiness mm. early on in those rehearsals like sort of early on I think there was a as every good actor had there was a sort of desire to protect your character and to sort of treat him with with love and to go no he is a good person let me show you how this is a good person it was a, it took it took a little bit of time for me to say to Brendan no he's not he's not a good person <laughs> he may have redeeming qualities but yes. and yes. I think there was one yes. time I remember when you told the story of when you met the critic in the pub when you met the, the, the oh no yeah. you met the director in the pub and whether it was because I'd been badgering you the whole time and you decided to take your frustrations on me as the director out on your portrayal of Peter. But you suddenly you suddenly gave him this weaselly little ugly quality. And I remember the first time you really did that in front of an audience and someone laughed and you you just looked at them. You just gave them these eyes that was a sort of I know you find that funny you filthy thing and you just went at it and from that point on I think that was that was my favorite bit because it was the it was always the bit where I think the audience suddenly felt a bit like their reactions were going to become a part of the entire evening mm. and I don't know that it's I don't know that it's the most eloquent bit of the play but it was always a bit where it felt like in Brendan's hands the audience just changed a little bit there into a place of I don't feel quite so safe anymore and it, mm. it was a sort of shot of electricity throughout it, which I always thought was. Mm. And the end, I mean, the end never fails to 
make all the hairs make all the hair stand up everywhere on my yeah, body. The allergy to love and hope. Yeah. Yeah. Was it a play that you knew at all before Brandon brought it to you, Simon? I I had read it at one point because I actually worked in the education department at the Donmar when they did The Night Alive, which I think before Girl from the North Country was the first new Connor play in a while. So mm-hmm. I sort of so I met Connor and interviewed him for the Donmar and sort of just read everything I could of his. So read St. Nicholas, but I confess bits of it gripped me, but I sort of read it in that quite perfunctory way when you're sort of reading everything to get a sense of what's this author about. So no, it was when Brendan mentioned it again that I sort of went back and read it and went, how did this, how did this pass me by? This is a bit of me. Yeah. But also when Brendan and I chatted, it felt like it was a bit of him as well. I hope hope that's all right, Brendan. But it, it felt like it spoke to both of us in, in different, but very compatible ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I have become, as I've got a little bit older, more and more interested in in work that, yeah, just an audience feel alive in. And just you read that opening page and you just go, God, people aren't going to know what's what's going on. They're going to have to be alive in this because it doesn't pander to any easy understanding. And yet it's somehow not obscure either. It's not it, it's not a sort of party that leaves you tapping on the window asking to be let in, nor nor does it give its secrets away cheaply. It sort of does this amazing thing that keeps you just just teased enough. Mm. It, it remains one of those things that if I think I'd seen it and someone else had done it, I'd have gone, oh. Mm. Yes, yes. Well, I think it's time we hear it. Is that all right, Brendan? Yeah. Can't wait. Okay, here we go. It's, uh, this is the opening to uh, St. Nicholas by Connor McPherson. When I was a boy... I was afraid of the dark, what was there. And maybe one of the things I thought was there was vampires. (laughs) I don't know. I can't remember now. But like all of us, whatever idea I did have about them was probably all the superstitious bullshit that we read in books, see in films and fiction. But that was nothing like the real thing. Like anything, the real thing is a lot more ordinary. It's a matter of fact. Matter of fact. And that's far more frightening than anything you can make up because it's real. It's just there. Just casual as everything else, just waiting to be dealt with. And there are practical things to be learned. Yeah. Back in those days, I was a fat bastard. And I had a big red mush from drinking. This is back before I met the vampires. Before I knew what power was and what evil was. But back then, I thought I knew everything. And I had lots of what I thought power was. Because I was... A theatre critic. I was a journalist. I was a lucky bastard. I was blessed or cursed. Whichever. With the ability to string words together, I could string words together. And that's all it was. I mean, I was intelligent, but I had no real thoughts about things. I'd never taken the care to form an opinion. I just had them. And only one care in the world, and I think back on it now... Me. I wanted everything. 
love, I suppose. Respect, esteem. But I didn't deserve it. No, I don't think I deserved any respect. But I got it. Oh yeah, I got it. Because people were afraid of me. I loved it. Going to big productions, big names, careers spanning tens of glittering years, and everyone afraid of what I'd write, of what I liked. And I hardly really liked anything. And even if I did like something, mostly what I felt was <sighs> jealous. I had tried writing, tried to convey the feelings I had that I genuinely fucking had for people. I loved people. I loved the stupid bastards. But I had no ideas. No ideas for a story. I wanted to let my compassion seep out across the stage. Handicapped people in love. Queers and lesbians absolving each other. A liberal fucking all-encompassing you know. But nothing came. Nothing ever came. I could only write about what there was already. I was a hack. And I was drunk. I was at gallery openings milling free glasses of wine. I was in the bar after the premiere of plays. I was the educated friend of the masses who read me, protecting them from these artistic charlatans who were trying to rob their money. And I could feel this light going out. I could feel it. Brilliant. <laughs> A lonely dog barking in the background as well. <laughs> but Lucy, thanks for, thanks for asking me. It's, it's been a treat talking to you. A real treat. Oh, thanks for doing it. Hear Me Out is a Lucy Eaton Productions podcast. Music composed by Tristam Kay and artwork by Rebecca Bright. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe. And I know it's a mini faff, but if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a rating and a review would mean the world. Finally, you can find us on social media at Pod Hear Me Out, and we're on YouTube, where you can catch visual clips of the show. Right, that's it. Lucy Eaton, exiting stage left. Mm-hmm.